So what is the one thing you want people to take away from this conversation? That learning about neurodiversity in business is really crucial, that it's not a nice to have, it is something that businesses must embrace. And why is it essential that people embrace and understand neurodiversity? One of the bigger issues really is that studies show that up to 75% of neurodivergent employees are struggling with mental health issues at work. And that is a lot of money for businesses. So if you just look at it from the profit side of things and productivity side of things, it's really important to create inclusive environments where everyone's happy, really. Happy workers make, you know, money, quite frankly, (laughs) happy workers make for happy business. Okay. So I agree with you. My counter, though, is, well, if they're that expensive and they're difficult to deal with, I'm not going to hire them. So how do we tackle this? The issue with that is that not so all neurodivergent people know that they are that. I mean, when we were children, autism wasn't really a thing. It wasn't spoken about. So I, I didn't get a diagnosis when I was a child. I didn't know I was autistic until my 40s. And a lot of people you know, in there who are sort of 40 and older don't know they might be struggling at work and and not really understand why they're struggling so much. So we have to bear in mind that with neurodiversity, we're really talking about what they call intersectional inclusivity, which is about making inclusive welcome environments for everyone. So it's, it's quite a complex thing to unpick. But in a nutshell, I mean, no one walks in with a sign on their head saying I'm autistic or I have ADHD. And the plus, on the positive side is that we bring a lot to the table. We have different perspectives. We work in different ways to other people so we can create new solutions that no one else may have ever thought of because of the way we work, the way we think. So there are a lot of positives. It's not just all neurodivergent people are miserable and we're hard work and we take lots of sick days because that's simply not true. It's about employers creating environments where everyone can thrive and everyone has what they need. You know, some people love working from home. Some people hate working from home. Is that is that kind of like looking at what each person needs and also knowing that most employees, whatever their neurology, aren't going to ask for what they call reasonable accommodations or quote unquote sort of special treatment. They'll just get on with it. They'll, they're happy with whatever's going on. So it's not as though if companies say, right, we want to help everyone, that every single person in a 300-employee company is going to say, well, I need to wear this headphones and I need to come in late and I need to work from home and I need lunch at a different time. You know, it's not going to be like that. It's only going to be a small amount of people that are going to want those things. Okay. I'm really very curious about the different perspective that neurodivergent people bring to teams. I, I'm I'm currently uh, pulling together this ecosystem, and uh, we've just started working together on live, effectively solve and learn kind of uh, events. So we've given two hours of our time to senior directors in companies and said, "Look, could be a bloodbath. Don't know what it's like. Uh, what will happen?" But what's been really interesting, we've only done one so far, but the experience of having so many brilliant and uh, very different minds on the problem was the depth of understanding. And I can honestly say I've never had such an exciting or exhilarating meeting. Honestly, I'd have paid to be there. 
it was that good. And I set it all yeah. up. So, you know, the, the idea that I would have paid, I, I would hope the others would as well. The client, he, it was like he was pregnant afterwards. He was glowing. I mean, he was literally glowing. I mean, two hours of having uh, people for lavish, undivided attention with the sole intent of helping him understand his problem. It's a really amazing experience. Yeah. And with diverse teams, I'm certainly seeing that kind of creative spark, the intersectional moments. But the big challenge is bloody hard. There are 2.4 million accidental managers in the United Kingdom, which constitutes, you multiply that by seven and a half, which is the average of the number of people that report in. And you've now got, um, you know, what, 15, 16 million people reporting into the 2.4 million. That's half the UK workforce. Yeah, yeah. Most people are not equipped. They're not equipped to recognize or understand how to deal with these issues. So what can we do to create the conditions to make it easier for people to just understand? Because there's so much we have in common, neurodivergent and non-neurodivergent. Most of what we have is in common, isn't it? Yes, yes, I completely agree with that. I think the biggest issue is taking the fear out of it, because anytime we don't understand something, we are afraid of it. And I think neurodiversity is definitely... One of those things where I think managers and, and you know, HR managers and, and business owners even, they don't understand it. So they they don't want to look at it. They don't want to, they they procrastinate about it. And they don't look into it because they think, oh, I don't need to deal with this. I don't, I don't understand it. So I'm not going to deal with it. And I think that's the biggest issue. And we're very lucky this day and age that there are more and more people. I mean, if you looked at link, if you look at LinkedIn just in itself, there's loads of neurodivergent people like me talking about neurodiversity at work. Loads of us. There's hundreds and thousands of us, you know, talking about this. So it's about helping managers tap into that rich seam of information of people sharing their experiences at work, sharing why this is important, sharing you know, information about things like the Equality Act, why it's something that you just need to get your head around and not be terrified of. You know, it is obviously you have a legal obligation to look after people, but it's not that hard. <laughs> it's not hard to do and it's not expensive. So I think it's about I think that really the bottom line is about taking the fear out of, of doing this work and that, you know, it's, it's really not that hard and it's not, it's just not an us and them thing. It's not a non-neurodivergent people, you know, neurotypical people as they, they are called versus the, the neurodiverse people as neurodivergent people. It's not, that's the wrong attitude. It's we're all people, you know, it's just yeah. a people thing. You just need to be human and look after each other. Well, I'm minded of um, that wonderful interview back in the 70s. Um, I saw it retweeted. I don't, my memory doesn't go back that far. But it's uh, Jonathan Miller responding to Enoch Powell and really encouraging him, instead of fanning the flames and creating the conditions where people fear, position it differently. L look at yeah. the potential. Look at the potential of having uh, such a diverse uh, population and uh, you know, what that brings. I fear that because as a species, we have a tendency to see difference as a threat. Um, Absolutely. It's hard right into us to see, to spot the difference, as I say. Okay. What can employers do who want to be fair, but also recognize their own skills limitations? Uh, what, what can they do to really make a start at least to move towards becoming a, a better employer for and uh, make it 
easier for neurodivergent people to thrive in the, uh, their environment? Well, I feel it starts with the with the recruitment process. It starts with things like what you've done for me, and I'm sure you do it with all your podcast guests. You sent me the questions. What a gift, you know, and, and that works in, in recruitment as well. If people have the questions ahead of time. I mean, I, I speak publicly all the time. I do tons of training. But in an interview situation where I don't know, obviously I'm going to know the answers to interview questions of, you know, what are your strengths and those kinds of things, but put on the spot, an autistic person might really panic and kind of look weird and awkward and, and not come across very well. Whereas if they have those questions in advance, they can prepare and think things through and provide really good answers. And just, it's making it just abundantly clear, even putting in recruitment materials, we are, welcoming neurodivergent employees just making it just you're just saying you know we are a neurodivergent friendly employer and making that making that clear and that and that it is part of the environment I think it's really about again it's not this us and them mentality but it is about looking at skill sets of people what can people bring to the table it doesn't matter if they don't want to go out for after work drinks or they don't come to the Christmas party or they don't engage in social banter at work. It doesn't matter those things, you know, it doesn't matter that maybe they don't quite dress the way other people do or they've kind of got that wrong, you know, and work because again, we've just talked about, you know, being able to spot the difference. That is something that people do. Oh, he dresses a bit odd or he does this or she does that. It's really about looking at those skill sets and, and cutting to the chase of what can this person do? What's their experience? What's their background? What, you know, what can they bring to our table? What missing piece can they bring to our puzzle that makes us a better company? I'm minded of, um, I think it's Epictetus, the Stoic, and he turns up to a banquet and uh, he's in his rags and looking unkempt. So they throw him out. Then he goes and cleans up and uh, dresses for the occasion and uh, turns up to the banquet and they sort of welcome him because he's a, a man of great renown and uh, the cashier being associated with him. And then he strips and leaves and says, well, uh, you know, it, it seems that you're only uh, inviting my clothes to dinner. And I think there, is, there seems to be quite a lot of that where the surface is what people see and they don't look deeper. Yeah. My, my guest today is Kate Laney Toner, who uh, is the founder of the Autism Training Company. Today, we're going to be looking at the essentials of embracing neurodiversity. We're going to dig into why it's hard. We're also going to dig into the fact that there is a lot of undiagnosed neurodivergency within probably even within your workforce, if you have employees. Uh, it may even be you. If you sometimes stick out like a sore thumb and people tell you that you don't fit in or you dress weirdly, or um, they keep inviting you to drinks that you don't want to go to, or Christmas parties that you would rather have your um, wisdom teeth pulled, then who knows? It may well be you. Kate, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the listeners 60 seconds on your history? Because uh, obviously, it's an interesting background, and uh, you came to uh, your neurodivergency quite late in life. Yes, I certainly did. So I started in marketing. I was in marketing for 22 years. And then in around 2012, uh, well, at 20, sort of 2010, my daughter actually 
we realised my daughter was autistic. She subsequently got a diagnosis. I live in Bristol. And at the time, I couldn't find the support needed for her. So I actually started a charity called Bristol Autism Support that I ran for 10 years until June of this year. And overlapping that, I began to do corporate training and corporate consultancy around autism and neurodiversity. That's where we are now. So I realized myself that about, gosh, about 10 years ago, it was around the same time that I, I am autistic myself. <laughs> I've had a diagnosis and also have a diagnosis of ADHD. So I'm as neurodivergent as they come. <laughs> and my life is sort of all autism all the time because I, I've got an autistic child. I'm autistic. My partner's autistic. My work is autistic. So it's really part of, you know, such a, a interwoven part of my life. So now, as I say, I'm doing corporate training and corporate consultancy, which I, I really love. It's a really important thing to be doing. And it's a really important thing to be doing now. It's a, it's, um, it feels like a hot topic that I hope will always be a hot topic. Okay, so l- let me come blundering into this conversation as um, a neurotypical uh, and ignorant. First of all, I was under the impression that many of these conditions like autism and ADHD were more male orientated. Is that accurate or is that a bias that I... No, that, that's really a myth. That is a myth. I would, I would personally say it really is more 50-50. I mean, the stats, I think it says something like two-thirds male to one-third female. But I would say a lot of that is down to the fact that women and girls just present very differently. I mean, we, we do a lot more of what's called masking, which is essentially camouflaging our way through life. We just sit back and observe a situation and kind of become whatever is needed of us in that situation. And girls are actually, society kind of trains girls to do that. Look nice, be, be nice, be, be friendly, don't make fast, you know, be, fit in, that kind of thing, where, where boys don't always get that message. Even if parents don't teach their children those things, society teaches children those things. So I believe it's really more that women and girls just present very differently in terms of autism and they don't always show. They kind of hide their traits. They want to look like everyone else more. I mean, boys will do this as well, but I think it's more more women and girls will definitely do that. Okay. So one of the, again, maybe it's a misconception, is one misconception may be that autists and uh, people with ADHD have a tendency to have a very low level of self-awareness in terms of their impact on others. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that because of uh, the conditioning girls have, they train empathy and being able to read the situation better uh, in order to avoid being noticed and getting into conflict or uh, threat. Absolutely, 100%. That's exactly it. That is interesting. Oh, Right. Okay. So I'm now really curious. Sorry to go off script, but does the training spend um, uh, quite a bit of time around helping people to become more self-aware? Yes. Yes, I think so. But what's interesting is you say that self-awareness. I'm painfully self-aware about myself in myself, but you're right about not always being aware of how my actions impact on other people. And I think that just has come with age. I'm 52 now and I'm far more aware of, you know, I can think now if I do this, this will happen. But someone who's just starting out and working in their early 20s just won't have that. They just aren't going to have that self-awareness and that sort of, you know, even the emotional regulation required to kind of understand other people aren't going to think like me if I do this this will happen that kind of stuff so that you know it's not it's not um it's not a black and white thing where all autistic people do this always 
I do think, you know, with age comes wisdom for everybody, you know, whether they're autistic or not. Well, <laughs> I can think of a few where it may not have happened, but <laughs> this is really really interesting oh right okay so my head's bun- um, bubbling with questions so if we think about the conditioning of girls have been different to the that of boys in the experience of boys how does their conditioning affect their own level of self-awareness and i'd be really curious about the kind of inner narrative that goes on because I, I don't know whether it's just, you know, the same as mine or anyone else's, but I, I'm really curious how much of that is looking for intrinsic validation versus extrinsic or just simply not wanting to be noticed. And uh, that's better than having any validation at all. I, I'm, re- I'm Yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a really tricky one. I would say that there's, you know, we're all, all society tells all of us that we can all, we can do all of it. We can do everything where we can do, you know, for men, even, you know, it's, it's not just women who can juggle career and housework and children and all that stuff. Men are, men are taught this as well, kind of, you know, constant pressure. You, you can be that. the comic, take the, be the breadwinner. You can take the family photos. You can book the holiday. You can do all, all these things. And I think for boys, the conditioning isn't, Oh, it's tricky because I'm not a boy, but I'm just thinking what that would be like. I think the conditioning is more around what, however you are is okay. Boys will be boys kind of thing. Boys are messy or, or, or get into trouble kind of thing. But I think there's a, a huge pressure on, on autistic boys, again, to fit in. And autistic people children and adults, we, are, we tend to be quite a lot younger than in, our, in ourselves than we are on paper. So, uh, for example, you will have a 13-year-old boy who might, in, in, his, in himself, be more like an 8-year-old, you know, in a, in a maturity level. So there's, that complicates issues quite a lot as well. I just think the conditioning is more about boys will be boys and they are just kind of the way they are. And I think it's really, for parents of, of autistic children, it's really, when, they get the, when the child gets to a certain point that, they're just not fitting in. They're not making friends. The chasm between the child and their same age peers is growing greater and greater and greater. That is is the difficulty. I think there just comes the time when you just see there's just something there that needs to be looked at. So would a clue be that the parent or the school or uh, people consider a child to be antisocial or reclusive or you know we're, we're on that spectrum it's actually that's a little bit of a red herring because it's actually desperate to fit in desperate for friends we're not reclusive at all we're desperate to fit in and find friends we just don't know how to do it we just don't always and i i was saying we because um, i include myself in that social things are very that's my that's my greatest difficulty in life social social oh, things right. business so, so this is about having it Sorry, so this is about having a need for extrinsic validation. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, and just, ah. and just friendship, we all, you know, belonging. If you think of Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, belonging is right in the middle. It's huge. It's right above safety and food. It's really important. Yeah. Belonging is a massive thing. So we all, you know, from the right. time we're born, want belonging. Uh, uh, absolutely. So given that, but the t- if someone comes across as needy, you tend to push them away. So does Absolutely. that then create that distance because they 
probably makes them a target for bullying or victimization as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to, it might make it easier if I give an example of my, my younger years before I knew I was autistic. So um, I had a job, well, I had jobs in many marketing companies. So I had this job in a marketing company. When I started there, I did what I did then. I don't anymore, but I kind of scanned the situation and like figured out like where, how do I fit in here? What do I need to do? Okay. Um, those are the popular people. I can see who those people are. I'm going to be like them. I'm going to kind of align like them. I'm going to wear the same kind of clothing the women are wearing and fit in and I and I did just that and I went like really hell for leather with that and I did all organized all sorts of activities and I did all sorts of stuff and I even won like a employee you know newcomer of the year award because I was so you know sociable but I couldn't keep that up I just always say this is like trying to hold a yoga pose you know you can't stay that way for very long and and I couldn't hold I couldn't I didn't understand how I could, yeah, I, could, I was masking and I could do the surface of it, but the mechanics, I didn't understand the mechanics of it, so I couldn't hold it up. So after a while, I just looked a little bit odd and people backed away from me and I subsequently left the company fairly soon after that because I just didn't know how to do it. You well, know, that's I really thought. tiring trying to be someone you're not. But it's not only exhausting, but it's also terribly inauthentic. So presumably that creates some internal dissonance because yes. you're having to show up and pretend. So how often did you find yourself having to allow your values to be bent? Or, um... Oh, all the time. But again, just to be clear, this was before I realized yeah. I was autistic. So no, I, no, I, I don't. Can. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean that that you know that was in my sort of mid thirties. Right, right but that that need that. to belong would be oh, a key driver yeah. there because um, if your fundamental human needs are not being met, your values yeah. will get thrown out with the bathwater immediately. That's normal human response. So yeah. I'm trying to piece this together because if you've gone through your childhood constantly afraid that you're not going to fit in then because you try so hard, uh, often not fitting in and then being rejected and then running that internal narrative and then often because you're different, being victimized or um, uh, isolated. And then presumably that builds up a wall of armor, resist, uh, resistance that causes you to block out more. Which yeah, so it, it, it can be kind of an all or nothing situation where I can I'm going to be all out there, or I'm going to just completely shut off and 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 not let anyone in. So it's it's very hard. Right. Okay. So this sounds very close to depression. Yeah. Oh, about, but, so um, you can really yeah. kind of full circle back to where we started our conversation. You know, so it can cause a lot of of real mental health issues if you feel you don't fit in and you're desperate to fit in. That's just yeah, that's, that feels awful for anyone. So. Let's go down a slightly dark alley then in terms of suicide, self-harm and self-medication, self-destruct. How often does that go, first of all, happen and then go unnoticed or undiagnosed? Uh, well, I, think, I think sadly it is quite a lot. I mean, there is, was a recent study um, of employees in the UK that showed that 75, around 75% of neurodivergent employees are struggling with, with mental health issues. So that, you know, obviously depression, stress, anxiety, all those things. I think it is, it's very, very common. And in fact, it lowers the life expectancy for autistic people. So in the UK, the average life expectancy of an adult is around 80. But for an autistic adult, without learning disability, it's 55. With learning disability, it's 
36 to 40, which is a really heartbreaking statistic. Wow. And the, when you've got learning disability, there are other issues where, you know, the person can't communicate. If they're hurting, they can't, you know, ask for help when they need to. Oh, there's also things like drowning. But in that group of people where there's not learning disability, there's a lot of suicide there. There's a lot of suicide in that group, which is terribly yeah. sad. Terribly um, sad. What I also see is many top performers in sales, and I've done a number of interviews uh, over the years, but the most recent one was with a chap called Ian Koniak, who is Salesforce's top rep ever. So he's done over 100 million in sales. And uh, the conversation that we had is a very common conversation that I have, uh, which is that uh, people are successful, but they realize after a while that what they're chasing in terms of success isn't the success that they want. And mm. as a result, they're really racing towards self-destruction. And because they're trying to fit in, then they're very competitive. So when they get to the top of the leaderboard, that's their dopamine hit uh, taken care of. Um, but that living fast... quite addictive. Exactly. But it li living fast leads to dying young and leaving a good-looking corpse. It leads to a belief that more is better. More of the right thing is better, but more of the wrong thing is just more of the wrong thing. And so you tend to then blame outside of yourself. It's not me, it's you, it's circumstance, it's not my fault. And you become very selfish and that creeping isolation builds and you start, uh, there's a danger. These people uh, often uh, start becoming very entitled. I deserve this. And in doing that, they burn more and more bridges and they become actively avoided. And so those relationships that have been eroded and undervalued over time, they've been eroded despite those people's patience. And the contribution that you make to your family, to your person, uh, to your friends, it becomes less and less as your trust erodes. And th the big problem is that I think the conditions of the work environment actually encourage this. When I was speaking to Ian, he didn't actually recognize until we'd had that conversation just how much uh, he became an accomplice to all of this. And he created more and more of the same conditions for the next generations when he was a sales manager and a sales leader. So I suspect yeah. many of them suffer from, uh, have neurodivergent qualities uh, as well. So is there quite a, a heavy codependence on things like drugs or you know, addictions um and... I don't know. I don't see that in my community, if I'm really honest. I mean, I think my feeling is that there's probably a higher than average proportion of neurodivergent people who, who are you know, self-medicating in that way. But I don't, maybe I'm being naive, but I don't get the impression that it's rampant and that it's it's out of okay. control. I think most people are just desperate to feel better and, and, yeah, and it's not just, just desperate to feel better and not really doing anything about it, if you see what I mean. Well, it, it could be booze, it can be exercise, yeah. it can be sex, it can be thrills. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I suppose that's true. So, so yes, if you look at it, just not not necessarily in just like a medication, but you know, maybe maybe they'll have been getting lost in gaming, or their or another sort of what we call special interest, or, or oh. perhaps they're getting into a relationship where they're they're kind of addicted to the other person. So there is that kind of thing that so happens. So, are there hormonal? and biochemical issues that we're talking about, or is it just about the brain structures? And um, because- uh, I it, think it's just about the brain structures. Right. 
uh, wondering because it, it, with people who have to go out and find these thrills, they often feel like there's a hole inside. And to get the dopamine hit, uh, they need to do more risky things. They need to uh, you know, have more of uh, alcohol. They have to have more whatever. And that's that it's especially true for people with ADHD because we're so easily bored, we need a lot of stimulation all the time. So it's finding a healthy way of getting getting those that that adventure, adventure seeker uh, in a safe kind of way, and understanding that you know, having having a glittery lamp on your desk is just as good as having a drink sometimes. And you know, it sounds <laughs> odd odd analogy but it's true if you understand and it's this is actually true across the board and, and i talked to like, the novelty yeah well it's just something different to, to look at and yeah. i talked to parents about this and it does apply here that if you have a child who's self-harming sometimes that's just a sensory seeking i'm not saying all the time and i'm not i'm not making light of self-harming at all but sometimes that's a sensory seeking thing where if you can incorporate a lot of other sensory inputs so physical activity we're using the big muscles and that's that's calming and and sensory things are playing with putty or or having a um, skin brush or something like that that applies across the board it's not just about children it does apply to adults as well so what we call that a sensory diet so every person you know not even just neurodivergent people but everyone needs a sensory diet we all need to understand like what do I need in my life you know um the bright light at work is is really hard for me I can't have that I need to do something different or I need more light at work or or I need to be looking at um fractal images on YouTube once a day to kind of stimulate something in my brain. It's just kind of understanding. And I think a lot of autistic people don't know that about themselves. They don't understand that they have these sensory needs that if if they met those needs with, as I say, a sensory diet, it's not a food thing, it's a, a sensory thing, um, then they will be a lot happier. For anyone who's really interested in understanding more about neurodiversity, I'd strongly recommend uh, the work of Temple Grandin. Mm. found uh, her story very, very interesting. Are you, I'm assuming you're familiar with it. Mm. So uh, again, I'd be really curious about other uh, key neurodivergent figures where people can find uh, and get more resources because obviously your journey 10 uh, years ago or so uh, was one where there were none. Uh, I'm guessing you've got quite a repository now. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think... You know, Temple Grandin is great. I do think some of her ideas are a little bit outdated, but she is a good sort of starting place. But I mean, I think in our our modern times, Pete Warmby is someone to absolutely follow. He's on LinkedIn. He's prolific. He's written two books. He is just a very, he's very open about his autistic experience. And he's just, as I say, he's a real prolific creator of things about neurodiversity. Um, Professor Amanda Kirby is also one. Leanne Maskell, Ellie Middleton, these are all people who are neurodivergent who are working in this field, who are who are talking to businesses about neurodiversity and they're but they're also their own lived experience and also the research that they understand. So I think those people are really helpful. I mean, the the number one way that we learn about neurodiversity is by listening to neurodivergent adults and listening to the lived experience of neurodivergent adults. It's all fine and good to look at research papers and listen to, you know, scientists talk about we've done this study and whatever. Those things have their place. But listening to two adults who have lived experience of working in in environments that are hard and what they could do better is really the way forward for, for anyone in, in business who wants to look at this. Okay. This is really very, very interesting. So 
tell me this, as a manager with neurodiversity, how do managers learn to adapt? What do they need to be aware of in terms of their own blind spots? Yeah. I think, I think one thing that when a person realizes they're autistic, and again, there are more and more adults, you know, in their sort of mid-30s onward that are realizing this about themselves because autism awareness is a kind of everywhere now. <laughs> There's lots of television shows with autistic characters and films and books, and it's just kind of, it's really surrounding us now. It, it, Ten years ago that, that it was sort of there, but, it, you know, it's really exploded in the, the last five years. So I think managers need to understand as you say the blind spots um autistic people myself included we are quite guilty of very black and white thinking it's either this or that <laughs> so it's it's knowing there's a gray area in there it's also understanding we we do have this is a little bit controversial in the autistic world but i i don't find it too controversial in myself there's an idea called theory of mind where that's about that's where i can explain this about i think something and I don't understand why you don't think that way. Yeah. And, and you think something, I don't understand why you think like that. It's not being able to put ourselves always in someone else's shoes. And learning that is something that managers have to do. They have to be able to put themselves in other people's shoes and understand the perspective of why that person's doing that. I mean, this is true of all managers, but autistic ones particularly, because we can get really quite stuck in our own, it's this way and it has to be this way. And I, I believe it's this way and I don't understand why anyone else doesn't believe it's that way. It's finding that flexibility to see, as I say, the great areas and to see that. Is, other, is that, is that just something that neurodiverse people have? Because I see no, a lot no, of No, it's, it's not, but I think we're more, we're, it's, it's a bigger issue. I think it's harder for us to... Okay. to which are brain sometimes. I know for myself, another, another example for myself is I never used to like collaborating. I was very possessive about my ideas, very controlling. I have this idea and I think it's a great idea. I don't want to share it with anyone because someone might steal it from me. You know, I've realized over the years that actually just letting it all out it's a much better way and working with people is wonderful because we all have different brains and we all have different ideas and, you know, someone will have a different way of looking at something or solving a problem that is... I mean, I would never have thought of it, but it's a much better way, you know, so I've had to learn that, which is a, a great thing to know. I, I maintain wisdom's wasted on the old and youth wasted on the young. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's some cruel cosmic joke. So if you are starting a business from a blank sheet of paper and you wanted to create the conditions that would attract a genuinely diverse group of people, including people who would be classed as neurodiverse. From what you're describing to me, whilst I understand that when the conditions become more extreme, it sounds largely, it's just a slightly darker version of a or, you know, slightly more extreme version of normal behavior. Nothing that I'm hearing is out of the ordinary when people are, for example, in conflict situations or in high stress, they behave in this way anyway. So it sounds to me that maybe what's happening is some of the command function is lowered and uh, the reptilian or the mammalian uh, protective brain kicks in. Is that, is that what's happening here? Because I'm, I'm no neuroscientist by any stretch. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not either. So I'd, I'd say, yes, you're, you're on the right track there. We struggle with something called executive functioning, which is being able to kind of plan and put in order the things we need. And, and some of us struggle with those things in, in different ways. I always give the example for myself where 
posting birthday cards is my executive function nightmare. Because if you think of it, that has a lot of steps in it. I've got to buy the card. I've got to remember. I've got to buy the card. I've got to write in the card. I've got to find a stamp, which you never have. I've got to find the letterbox. Well, now we're in the postal strike area, you know, era. So I've got to make sure I post my letter, you know, card eight days in advance or something, you know, to, to make sure it gets somewhere. So there's all these little steps and neurodivergent people really struggle with executive functioning sometimes we need do we need to be able to see what the steps are this is need to do it in this order how what how what do i do if if something goes wrong how do i correct what did i do last time how did that work who did who might be able to help me with this so it's 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 that kind of thing that that we do really struggle with but going back to your question about you know, if you're creating something from scratch, the thing to there's lots of things to bear in mind with that. I mean, the world of work has changed, as we know, dramatically. You know, if you think of, we all talk about how pre-pandemic no one was allowed to work from home, couldn't be trusted to work from home, and now so many people work from home, and that's realised to be perfectly fine. You know, some businesses are now I like this term hybrid. You know, you're a bit at home and you're a bit at work. And things are more flexible. I mean, if you knew, you know, when I do corporate training, I use this slide that shows a sort of 1950s office where everyone's in these there's eight desks and they're like right in a row and everyone's in their suit and tie and even the blinds are like perfectly aligned. You know, it's really like straight lace. And I say, well, you know, that's not where we work now. We don't work in this kind of environment. We spend a lot more time with each other at work than anyone ever used to. It did used to be that very strict nine to five. Now it's kind of nine to six, you know, nine to seven or eight to seven or you know it's longer hours and we're more sociable at work because we're there longer and we just need to kind of get along this is kind of a tricky thing to say but you know we have to bear in mind that yes it's true that around 20 percent of our workforce is neurodivergent that's still 20 percent you know and we we can't we can't mold everything around neurodiversity for example if you were to turn the lights down for people who are autistic, that might be a struggle for someone who's vision impaired, or you turn, you know, you're in a museum and you turn the sound right down for autistic people, then what about the person who's hearing impaired? So it's about kind of creating a, a level playing field that's that cartoon of that equity. You know, if you gave everyone the same size box, that's equality. But if you create a box, you know, they're looking over a fence at a game or something. Yeah. But if you gave everyone the right size box for them, that's that's equity. You know, it's 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 helping everyone meet their own needs at work and that's what the equality act says it's about everyone needs to have what they require at work in order to do the job and it's called reasonable accommodations the clues in the name reasonable you know we're not saying dear employee you need to build an office for me with soundproofing <laughs> it's not that it's I'm going to wear headphones at work and I'd like that to not be seen as socially weird and awkward. I'd like that to be an okay thing. That's no cost to the employer whatsoever. They've got their own headphones. It's that kind of thing. Uh, so it's it's really, when you're starting with a blank slate, it is not so hard these days because we're all working very flexibly and we're all working a bit at home and a bit at work and, and that kind seeing, of thing. Are you seeing a significant difference in terms of the levels of acceptance? between maybe boomer and gen x leaders and managers and employers and millennial and gen z yeah. is there more awareness i think so yeah i i think so i mean i don't i'm self-employed now i don't work in an office but when i was in marketing <laughs> you know that's a very youthful business sector shall we say but i would like to think 
that generation is more aware because autism is more everywhere, you know, now and, and more talked about and more out in the open and there's more diagnosis. I mean, between 2000, what was it, 1998 and 2018, there was a 787% increase in autism diagnosis and that's across the board all ages so you know children to adult and it's not because there's some epidemic it's not because we're all eating gluten or glyphosate in our food or any of that you know that people will will believe and argue vehemently about it really is about awareness we're more aware and we see in ourselves you know we're watching something on television that really resonates we read a blog post and we see someone on LinkedIn or, or whatever, and we think, wow, that sounds like me. So there is more, more awareness. I think it's kind of a difficult thing because that younger generation is just kind of naturally more aware. They talk about it at school. They see things on television, whereas our, our sort of generation is more slow to the party. And we're kind of like, oh, what's this thing? What's this? No, what is it? <laughs> we're kind of like, oh, okay. You know, we're a little bit slower <laughs> to kind of get our heads around it. Well, to my mind, it just seems that we should be making better use. I started studying something called spiral dynamics, which is the next level up from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it just takes it to a different level of uh, practicality because um, you need people who operate at that survival level because they're really good at spotting risks. You need people who are into order because they create systems and processes that are repeatable and scalable and they put boundaries and rules in place and they have wonderful things like compliance and governance, which are good things and should be profit centers. And we need people who take action. But what we don't need are the negative qualities of all of those types of behaviors because too much order and structure becomes constraining. Too much action on your own initiative probably means that people are wasting time uh, and getting in each other's way. You know, having some alignment would be good. Uh, And this again comes back to what we started with, which is let's look for what we have in common. And let's welcome and um, enjoy the diversity uh, for the fact that they bring a different perspective. So let's get into some down and dirty stuff uh, around actual work. What type of work are neurodiverse people especially good at? Because I've seen them perform brilliantly in the military. I've seen them perform brilliantly in media. And I've seen them perform brilliantly in sales. So I'm curious about other areas. I wouldn't say there is one area. I think just like anyone, we're all very different. We all like different things. I, for example, love speaking publicly and doing training. Other neurodivergent people would absolutely hate that. It would be the last thing in the world they'd want to do. I don't think there is really, if I'm honest. I mean, I would say if, if there was one industry, it would be media, entertainment, more creative And a lot of reason I say that is because those industries are more accepting of someone who maybe dresses a bit differently or just presents a bit differently in themselves or has a different sort of way of of working. But I I don't know that I would actually say, oh, it's this, this and this industry that neurodivergent people thrive in. I think we can thrive anywhere as long as we know what the expectations are. We understand, you know, we all all have different interests. Again, it's going back to this idea that, it's not what do these people do? <laughs> these okay. neurodivergent people. So we're all again, we're all people. So we all like different yeah. things. Speaking there you go. People don't. Gen X bias and all that shit. 
let's come back to then thinking about the kind of work then that neurodivergence uh, really lends itself well to, either working alone or in teams. Again, how best to deploy uh, neurodivergent people? Say that we are, we do tend to be loners. We we love to belong. We do love to be part of things. We love to be. I don't want to say we love to be cogs and wheels because we don't always love that. We like to be <clears throat> the biggest cog sometimes, to be honest. Um, but we do, we do, we kind of like a bit of both. We like to be able to go away and do our thing and then bring that back to the group and say, look, here's what I've done and we're all working together. So I think I think there's, there's both of those things because, again, that, that need for belonging is really pretty strong in, in everyone. Um, I'm, so, I'm so it's, just it's, not it's seeing that things. much difference, though. I, I mean, do, do, I, I, I get it. That it must manifest. But... This just sounds to me like normal human beings wanting to belong and wanting <laughs> exactly. to Exactly. I think, you know, coming, coming down again, use that term nitty-gritty, I think the nitty-gritty of it is about how can we make the work environment easier for everyone. So I've got a friend who's got a friend, and that friend has, um, he's autistic, and he's actually worked out with his managers because there's something going on in the office with the UK, he doesn't cope on. This was actually before the pandemic, so before working from home was a thing. So what he would do is he would come in, he would do all of his work at home. He would come in, show his face to lunchtime and then he would leave, but everything was done and he was an excellent employee and his employers realized this person is brilliant and we just need to work around. We need to let him work how how he needs to work. And I think that is what is really key. And that is really where workplaces need to be now and where they need to be going is that everyone needs to be Again, it's that reasonable accommodation. I think everyone needs to be able to work how they want to work, whether they're not or not. They need to be able to work how they work in the way they need to work as long as that gets the job done. My view, wholehearted viewpoint is that as long as people are getting the job done, it doesn't matter how they do it. It doesn't matter if they do it from home. It doesn't matter if they do it in the first four hours of the day or whatever. As long as objectives within the company are met, that project is done that project is a success you are interacting with your colleagues in the way you need to whether that's via zoom or in a meeting in the office i think it's it's getting rid of this idea that many 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 managers have always done it this way and that's why we have to do it because we've always done it this way that is a bullshit answer for anything well, yeah, we but- can't well, be successful. We keep looking at it like that but that is really a function of uh, dysfunctional management the fact that there are 2.4 million accidental managers in the UK, rough, let's say like 40, 45% of all staff reporting to an accidental manager, managers get next to no training. The training is, Kate, we need to have a word. And you think you're getting fired, but you're not, because we just fired your boss. You're now the idiot boss. Congratulations. Yeah, you're, you're, and that's you're your runway. Boss. Yeah. yeah. So that's your runway. Now, if someone already has some challenges in terms of, uh, their neurodivergence. I suspect that might come as a little bit of a shock, but they'll adapt because they have to fit in. Then inside, there's this bit of panic goes on. Um, and the natural response, and I'm not pointing the finger at any uh, part of um, the workforce, uh, but what happens then is they do one of two things. They either do what they think is right, which can often be not, or they do what was done to them. And they just keep propagating the things that didn't work in the past. And there is no runway to learning how to be a manager. And I think um, from from this conversation, maybe I'm downplaying it, but it sounds to me like 
about a fifth of the workforce needs a certain type of way that you manage them. And you might need to adapt their environment or their working conditions. And you might have to accommodate because their communication style is different. But there will be four-fifths of the workforce, which also has small groups within it, uh, that need special treatment as well. Half the... Stop on. You've hit it on the head. Yes. Women and men and people with um, different uh, backgrounds, different jobs. I mean, this is just management. Yeah. At the end of the day, it is. It, but why do why do we make it so complicated? It does. I think again, it goes back to that. Is that fear thing, Marcus? It's that. Oh, I don't understand this. It's I need fear to and ignorance, this isn't it? Scary. I don't get it, so I'm not going to do anything with it because I don't. I don't understand it. The conversations I've had with you, Rob, and various others have caused me to think maybe I have these conditions, but then I'm uh, also starting to think beware, Doctor Google. And uh, so, yeah. um, <laughs> but yeah. The, None of what you've described to me, maybe because of my filters on the world, but it doesn't really describe, does anything uh, sound like anything more than maybe a slightly more extreme version of normal behavior in most cases. I mean, there will be some extremes, but the fact that management aren't adapting is an indictment on them and their leadership, uh, not giving them the support that they need. Yeah, because um, the rush, the the pace of which everything is moving at. So I'm going to posit something. What if and I'm going to be accused of all sorts of horrible things, like being um, a wicked socialist or something? But what if growth wasn't the main objective of business? What if the main objective of business was to create solutions to problems that customers actually have and create a fantastic work environment so that people want to come to work and work together? And you build a profitable business. I mean, what if yeah. that was the objective? How, how many of these problems do you think would disappear? That would be that, that's like Nirvana. I mean, that's that sounds absolutely amazing, and that's what we all should be striving for. And I think it's it's that whole thing of, you know, oh, let's look at the numbers on paper, and then you don't factor in that there's all these people that made the numbers on the paper, and how did they work, and how what can we do better, you know, with these people? It's, it really isn't hard, as I keep saying it. It's not. It's about you know getting rid of the fear of it. It's not. It really isn't hard. I mean, at the end of the day, the two things that make anyone of any age anxious are not knowing what to expect. You know, what I'm going to this meeting, what's going to happen? I'm going into an interview. I don't have the questions, <laughs> and not knowing what's expected of us. You know, and and those are even little things like, I give you an example of of a, of a office dress code. You know, you're told, oh, it's um, it's a business casual. Well, what the hell does that mean? You know, what what do you what do you wear? You know, and you, you might go into an office and someone's wearing a dress and heels, and someone's wearing and that could be a man or a woman actually. You know, and someone's wearing a suit and someone's wearing, like it doesn't make sense. It, it's making the, even those kinds of things like very clear. When do we go to lunch? Where do people go? What do people do? Do they eat at the desk? Do they go to a lunch room? Do they go out? You know, what do people do? Just it's these little things of what what can I expect and what's expected of me? As long as we know those things that solve so many problems in the workplace. Right. So we talked about it earlier and I want to cycle back to it, which is um, in the recruitment process, how can we identify people with neurodivergent tendencies and also establish a safe environment 
so that they know that they're not going to be discriminated against and engage with them so that they help us understand what we need to do in order to make minor adaptations to accommodate them and make their work environment better and more conducive to them doing their best work. I don't think it's about identifying neurodivergent people because that's a really uh, tricky no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not looking for the uh, identifying them. I'm looking for right. identifying people who have qualities of neurodivergency um, right. in the right. process so that we can identify. When I'm interviewing, one of my first questions is, Kate, it's three years from now. You've been highly successful in the role. What's your next job? Because from day one, you're going to start a path to learn how to do that job. So when you progress into it, you don't fall flat mm. on your face. You start successful. So mm. I want to understand exactly what it is that we need to do to create the conditions so that you can thrive. Help me understand that. Mm. That's what I that's okay. what I'm really so so I think I think it's really about again, not not an us and them kind of thing. It's making the environment really open for for everyone. It is, I don't know how to explain this better. It's making it so that people understand that if they need some accommodation, that they need to be able to ask for it. I don't know. I mean, it really is just kind of being quite explicit about. So what are those frequently unasked questions? What are the questions that people who know that they have uh, a neurodiverse condition should be asking for in the uh, the interview um, process. Well, you know, everyone is very, very different. So some people might really struggle with a bright light. I've got a ring light in my face right now. It's not bothering me at all. So everyone is very different. So it's again not not saying all autistic people need or want to work from home. They don't all want to do that. All autistic people need this. All people with ADHD need this. It's about and again, not all those people are going to know they have those conditions. So it's about making sure that all employees are comfortable there's a there's a direct clear path for them to express what they need you know i'm really struggling we have this open plan office it's really loud i'm going to wear headphones and can it be part of the company culture that wearing headphones at work is not see make make me look like an antisocial miserable person because it's not who i am just making sure that everyone is is very aware making sure you know, it's it's a it's just woven into the company culture that people can ask for what they need and ask for help. And again, the fear for management is that if I open the you know if I if I offer this up that everyone can ask for what they want, I'm going to open a floodgate. And everyone's going to ask for something different, and I can absolutely 100% guarantee that it's not going to happen. If you've got 100 employees, you might have. 10 or 15 that are going to say, you know, can I sit by the window instead of sitting where I sit or can I move to a quieter place or can I wear headphones or can I come in an hour later and leave, when I, you know, leave an hour later? Or, you know, but these are so minor, these little things are nothing expensive, you know? I don't know if that's really helpful. I guess I'm trying to say it's not, it's not something that's so prescriptive. It's something that's just about Again, inclusivity kind of for everyone, intersectional inclusivity is the sort of buzzword these days, intersectional inclusivity, you know, about making environments comfortable for, for everyone. And that we don't, but we're kind of throwing out that we've always done it this way. We've always had this nine to five. We've always had lunch at this time. We've always done it this way. You know, it has to be like this. As these are all the rules. The rules are, you know, because some of those rules are just nonsense don't make any sense they don't they're for no reason at all i think the I, bottom line for me is that as long as people are, are doing their job i think it's about treating adults like adults 
And as long as people are doing their job, it doesn't matter when they do their job or how they do their job, as long as they are meeting the objectives and, and doing well with them. If it genuinely creates disruption and uh, dissent, but uh, for anything that you've just described, it, it, someone who would grumble, someone wearing headphones or a, a, a hat to cover you know, from an overhead light, it's insane. And that people would be angry about but that. But I think often it's envy. Or... Again, it's, that's part of the difference. Oh, he's a bit weird. He's a bit answered. Did you see he's always wears that hat or he always wears those headphones and I, it feels... Da, 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 da. You know, it's, it's a thing. It's a problem. It's a thing that happens. It's just about mm-hmm. making culture that, that you know, all those things are, doesn't matter, you know? I mean, it, it does seem that we get so fixated on utterly petty, pointless shit. Why? I mean, surely life is short enough and filling it up with that drivel? Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, okay, we've come to time. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Sorry we didn't follow the script. Gotcha. How can people get a hold of you? Great. To find me on LinkedIn, it's Kate Lane Toner. That's L-A-I-N-E hyphen T-O-N-E-R. And my autism training company is at autismtc.co.uk. So please do find me. I'd love to talk to you and talk to anybody about neurodiversity. I could have talked more hours, hours more today. <laughs> it's my specialty subject. So, <laughs> okay. Well, let, let, let's finish on a couple of uh, questions then. What was your best mistake? My best mistake was starting a charity. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, and I just knew I had to do it, and it was. A mistake because I didn't know what I was doing, but I actually did it really well. And and if I'm people really want to donate, it changed my life forever and gave me a whole new career. So it was a great, it was great, Lovely. a great stupid thing to have done. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, again, it's an achievement, a real achievement. What are you proudest of with that? I reduced isolation and still do because the charity Lovely. is still going, even though I'm not there. It still, it still is a, a, an active charity. Parents of autistic children are very isolated. It's a very lonely place to be, especially when you're new to the world and you don't know other people and you have never seen other autistic children. So that, that's my proudest thing. I, I helped to reduce isolation for people and helped people not be so scared because it is just same as in business. When you have a child who's autistic, it's a really scary a scary thing when you first find yourself in that. So I, I helped people to not feel scared and I continue to help people not feel scared. So I'm very Fantastic. proud of that. And how can people donate if they want to? Well, if you go to the website, it's bristolautismsupport.org and there's a donate button right on the homepage. So do do go no. donate to them. That's still a wonderful charity. Kate Lentona, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. It was a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this informative and useful, then please like, comment, share, and do tag somebody uh, who would benefit from this. And if you are considering bringing in an external speaker, please bring Kate in. I'm sure that your team will benefit from it. And it really does need broader exposure. So if you want to get hold of me, my email is marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. And if you want to come on the podcast, put in the subject line inquisitor guest and if you want to talk to me about coaching click the link below and speak to you soon bye happy selling